prayer the same prayer? Is the right prayer or is the wrong prayer? And is it really even important? Um, I think you may find it interesting that uh, Jesus never instructed his disciples on how to teach or preach or heal, but he did instruct them regarding how to pray. <clears throat> and, uh, and by his instruction, we see how important it is. But, but we can all affirm its importance. I think we can all affirm by experience its difficulty. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that preacher in London in the mid-20th century, said that everything else is easier than prayer in the Christian life. Prayer is very difficult. So, so I want to encourage you to pay attention as David prayed to this familiar passage on, on prayer. I, I want to look at it in two ways. So I want your minds thinking kind of pre-prayer, kind of a, a posturing. How do we posture ourselves before God in prayer? How do we approach God? How do we think about God? First, we want to gain a proper posture, and, and then we're going to look at the pattern of prayer that Jesus has set for us. You know, we always want to start with theology before we go with methodology. And so we want to get a proper posture, and then we want to look at the pattern of prayer. Those are the only two things I want to speak about. So if you turn with me to this familiar passage, let's read it together in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 to 15. And when you pray, Jesus is instructing his disciples, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your, heaven, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So first, that posture of prayer. Jesus is instructing his disciples, hey, here's how you come to pray. And, and he's going to use a contrast with these Gentiles. Remember last week he contrasted teaching with the Pharisees. Don't pray in such a way that kind of adds to your own spirituality. But he's contrasting now with the Gentiles. These Gentiles would pray these empty phrases. That's what he says here. He says, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases. The Gentiles did. They thought that that the repetition of words over long periods of time was helpful to the gods to inform them. He says, you know, it's kind of like this way, actually. If you take a Muslim, a Muslim will want to learn prayers in Arabic, even though his native tongue may be Persian, because the Koran's written in Arabic, and so they'll memorize an Arabic prayer from the Koran, but they won't understand what it's saying. And they're thinking they're praying. And what Jesus is doing here is he's not condemning repetition in prayer. Jesus repeated himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's condemning the repetition without giving thought to what we're praying. It's not a thoughtful expression of the soul. Uh, they, they, their Gentile prayer was more mechanical. It, it was more uh, by volume of words. And their thought was, well, the gods will be pleased with me. And first I have to inform them of my needs, and then if I petition and petition and repeat and repeat, that they will give me what I need. 
and, and they will, I will appease their wrath. I'll get from them what I think. It's a very mechanical type of prayer. And what it really does is it reveals much about the gods they prayed to, didn't it? I, I mean, it, it's kind of like they can be, first they have to be informed. They can be cajoled. Obviously, they're kind of hesitant to help, so you've got to really work them into a position of helping. Uh, they can be bought, you know, by the amount of prayers. It, it's kind of like the prayers of the um, prophets of Baal. In, in fact, in, in some ways, it looks like a bad parent. You know, if you just pester them long enough, then they'll give you what you want. And, and these gods are like bad parents is what they were. With, with Jesus, of course, he condemns this. But, but before I go on to explain what he said, what is your prayer life? I mean, how, how do you pray? How, how do you approach God in prayer? I mean, I think these Gentile practices have migrated into the evangelical church. And many of us do pray mindless prayers. I mean, we pray the same thing, and all of a sudden, after we finish praying, we don't know what we just prayed. Or, or we say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We don't even know what hallowed really means. But we pray these things. Some of us, I think, slip into some sophistication in prayers. We love the style and the eloquence, and we think that by that, God has somehow more disposed to us. What does that say about God? Or, or many others, perhaps we fall into this tendency to want to pray manipulative prayers. If I just get enough people, and if I get 10 or 20, maybe 30, then my faith begins to soar by the number of heads that are praying for something. Is that the way God works? He's impressed by numbers, and whereas the solitary person just praying by themselves doesn't have the same ear. Or what about controlling prayers? You know, those prayers that say, by faith, I'm going to believe it, and in Jesus' name, I'm going to claim it as mine. Do we pray those prayers? Again, what does it say about God? I, I think that these prayers have erred into becoming like Gentile prayers. And it really casts, I, I would say, a, a rather untrue picture of the character of God. Well, Jesus wants to correct us. He wants us to have a right posture. Father always used to say to me, you know, stand up, stand up, put your head up, put your shoulders back. Posture is important. And, and the right posture in prayer is significantly important for us to draw the joy, the satisfaction, and to walk in it as he calls us to. So how do we posture ourselves? Well, look what Jesus says here in verse 8. He says, don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So the, the first thing we see that Jesus instructs us is he instructs us to address God as a father. For you to understand the fatherhood of God is mandatory, it's necessary, if you're going to pray rightly and pray powerfully. You have to understand God as father. That is no small potatoes. Okay, remember, God has only addressed his father 14 times in the Old Testament. And there is no example of an individual ever addressing God as Father. In fact, the Jewish person wouldn't even use the name of God, Yahweh. So for Jesus to say, call him Father, would have been revolutionary at a minimum. But more likely, they would have considered it blasphemous. Because who are you to claim God as your very own Father? But Jesus takes a step further. There's a Greek word for Father, and there's a Greek word Really, it's an Aramaic word that is in our text, Abba. So he's not saying just call him Father, call him Abba. Abba had a greater uh, personal intimacy associated with it. Some preachers like to translate it Daddy. I, I wouldn't go Daddy. I, I think I would go Papa or Dear Father. I, I don't want to lose that sense of reverence, and you're going to see why in a few minutes. 
Um, so I, I would go, Papa, but there's a deep intimacy that Jesus is instructing us. When you go to God, he is a loving, caring father with whom you can say, Papa. There's a closeness that, that you are to come. You are to come and approach prayer as if God really does love you. You know, Charles Spurgeon tried to explain this nature of love. He said it this way. He says, you as parents... You know when your children are young and you go into their rooms at night and they're sleeping. I mean, there is a love. They're, they're laying there, they're small, they're innocent, they're naive, they need your protection, and you love them. Your heart is filled with love for them as you look at them before you. And when they get older and they make decisions that are troubling or difficult, your heart breaks for them in accordance with your love for them. I mean, you have a love for your children. And when we approach God, he has that love, but more, and in greater and purer fashion for us. Think about when John in his first letter writes, how great a love the Father has for us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. But, you know, why does he have to add that? That's what we are. He's moving it from the, from the theoretical to the, to the experiential, that we are children of God. This is significantly important. I quoted this a few months back, but it really does fit in this passage here. This is from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, and it's about the fatherhood of God. He says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, I'm going to read it slowly because I think it's a well-worded and profound passage. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. It's profound. The fatherhood of God. That, that the Christian approaches God <coughs> excuse me, as father. Now, is that how you approach God? Should we approach God as father? I mean, can all of us in this room just approach God as father? I mean, many people believe that. They believe in the universal fatherhood of God, that since God is creator of all things, all things can call him father. Is that true? Is that what the New Testament teaches? Well, I would say no, it doesn't. The New Testament teaches this, that only those, only those who have been reconciled and adopted by God can call him father. See, what the Bible teaches us, both old and new, is that we're separate from God we're apart from God, we're at odds with God, all of God's creation is apart from him. All the way from the beginning when God cursed, brought a curse upon creation, upon the man, upon the woman, God has brought about a curse. In fact, Paul says it this way, you and I, we were far away and enemies of God. So we don't have the right, once we understand the existence of God, to just call him Father. Because we have been unreconciled. We're at enmity with God. Now this is the glorious news and the mercy of God is that he would give us a son that would then die for us. This is the gospel. This is the reconciliation. This is why when Jesus 
died, he died on a tree. Why? Because the scriptures remind us, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. So Jesus bore that curse, which caused that enmity with God so that we might be reconciled and adopted. And by Christ dying for us, shedding his blood, bearing our sins, bearing our shame for us before God, he took the curse that separated God from man. Therefore, we can now be reconciled and restored and adopted back to being a son or a daughter. That's the beauty of the gospel. And this was all because why? God loves us. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, that in love he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, all to the praise of his glorious grace. God moved mighty and first in moving towards us with love, giving Christ to adopt us for his pleasure so that we might give him all the glory. There will be no boasting in heaven. There'll only be boasting over the one who died for us and the father who in love predestined us to be adopted as sons. Now, we, of course, exercise faith. We believe in the Lord Jesus. We move towards him with faith and joy. They both are operating, God moving with love, and then we respond with faith to his grace. In fact, we see that in John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. He says, to all those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God. To all those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But here's what he says about it. He says, children not born of natural descent. It's not through a lineage, nor of a human decision. You didn't decide one day, hey, I need a little bit of God in my life. You didn't decide that, but it says born of God. God gave birth to you having faith to move to his predetermined love. That's what makes you a child. And if you do not have Christ by faith, then you cannot appeal to God as father. But if you do, then in prayer, we come with a boldness because he is our papa. It's the first thing we see here. Your father. It's a revolutionary idea that Jesus is giving us. But not just that. Our Father is not just loving. Our Father is all-knowing. Notice what he says here. He says, he says, don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Before you ask him, it literally in Greek, before you open your mouth, he knows what you need. He knows the days that you're going to be living. He knows the trials that you're going to face. He knows the obstacles that you're going to overcome. He knows the death through which you'll pass. He knows all these things. In fact, it says in Matthew 6.31, he says, just we'll study it in a few weeks, therefore don't be anxious saying, what are we going to eat, what are we going to drink, what are we going to wear? For the Gentiles, again in contrast, seek after these things, your heavenly Father knows you need them all. Then of course it goes on to those great words, but seek first the kingdom of God. In other words, seek God's glory first, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But he knows you need him. So I know in your mind right now, you may be thinking, well, then why should I pray? If he knows it all, why do I even pray? And let me just read to you from the words of John Calvin, the reformer of the 16th century, Geneva, Switzerland. He says this, he says, Believers do not pray with a view of informing God about things unknown to him or of exciting him to do his duty or of urging him as though he were reluctant on the contrary, they pray in order that they may arouse themselves to seek him. 
that they may exercise their faith in meditating on his promises and that they may relieve themselves from their anxiety by pouring them into his bosom in a word that they may declare that from him alone they hope and expect both for themselves and for others all good things. That's why we pray. We need to pray. So he's an all-loving father. He's an all-knowing father, but now he's an all-powerful father. Notice what Jesus says in verse 9. He says, pray then like this. Our father, that's what we've been speaking about, in heaven. 20 times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says God dwells in heaven. Why does he do this? Why would he keep repeating to us that he dwells in heaven? It's obviously not to tell us where he lives. I think it's to give us a visual understanding of his power and his glory. I, I, I think he's, he's reminding us, so when, before the service, I go outside to look at the heavens. I want to remind myself of his glory and power and his transcendence, his beyond tracing out. It reminds us that he is of a whole other order than we. And it reminds us that we are neither transcendent nor are we beyond tracing out. We are bound to this earth. We are fast bound in flesh to this planet. And we can't do anything about it. But he dwells in the heavens. All glory, all power, all majesty. I mean, Jesus, when, when we pray, he's saying, look to the heavens. Remind yourself of his power and beauty. Remind yourself of his absolute limitless wisdom and, and value. He's, he's showing us we're physical people. Look at his creation. Perhaps it was to stimulate your minds to think about Second Chronicles when David prays, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand. No one can withstand you. That's kind of good news if I'm going to him for prayer. I mean, think about it. No one can withstand you. Power and might are in your hand. I mean, that's the God that we come to and worship. And he's our father who loves us and knows it and knows all that we need. I think about, you know, just a simple lightning bolt. It's a simple idea. You've seen hundreds of them. Uh, generally, they're about five miles long, 50,000 degrees of heat, 10 to the 12th powers of, of wattage, 100 million volts, just one bolt, just one bolt. And they all do his bidding. So when we come to this God who sends the bolts out as he chooses, this is who we come to. We want to posture ourselves right. He loves us. He's displayed that in Christ. He knows what we need, so we're not having to inform him. And, and my goodness, he has this glorious power. In fact, this is what St. Chrysostom, he was a, a great, it was called the golden mouth preacher and of the fourth century. And here's what he said. He said, this was his prayer, grant that we may dare to call on thee as father and to say, our father, let that be weighty, not in a heavy sense, but weighty in terms of all the glory that it demonstrates on God to say, our father, that's big. So that's the posture we need to understand the character of God as loving and knowing and powerful. And this ought to change the way we pray. Number one, it should bring us it should bring us into a confidence before God. In other words, when you approach God in prayer, you're thinking that he loves me. He wants to hear me. He wants me to draw near to him. What parent here wouldn't want your child to come to you in their time of need? I mean, what parent, what, who of you would push your child away? 
None of you would. And yet God is, he wants us to know. No, come in confidence over his love for us. I, I love that passage in Matthew 7 where he says, he says this, if your child asks for uh, bread, will you give him a stone? Now, parents, I want you to ask yourself this. If your child came and asked for bread and he's hungry, would you give him a stone? If he asked for fish, will you, give him a, will you hand him a snake that could hurt him or scare him? He says, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask? It's a question that we, as people, have to ask ourselves. So I want you to come knowing that he loves you. This is a quote from John Owen, a, a theologian back in the uh, 17th century in England. And uh, it was in this book that we just read, The Lighting of the Trinity. And uh, here's the quote. He argued this, the greatest unkindness you can do to him, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is to refuse to believe that he loves you. You can no more, you can no way more trouble or burden him for he has adopted us and is our Father. So folks, come with confidence in his love. But also, you can be confident because he does know what you need. You and I are weak. We're fallible. We're broken. We are but dust. Our bodies are fading away before our eyes. He knows that. He has compassion on his children. The verse that Nick read at the beginning from Psalm 103, a father has compassion on his children. He has compassion on those who, who fear him, for he knows how we're formed. He knows we're dust. Sometimes I think we're the only ones that don't know we're dust. He knows it. We don't know it. You are dust. I am dust. We will be dust in a box. I want to assure you of that. That will be the case. We need to dial into what he knows. And, and even though we are broken and we fall into sin, he is compassionate to us. Please don't let your sins of the day stop you and prohibit you from coming to a father who already knows your dust. Again, what parent here would, would, would dissuade their child from appearing to them even though they have not done all things perfectly? I, there's a confidence to know that he knows we're dust. And then there's a confidence we have to approach God because of his power. You are secure no one will snatch them out of my hand. I love the song that we just sang, To Jesus to Keep. I love that. Jesus is keeping us. Seated at the right hand, far above rule and authority. So, so that's the confidence we have. I want you to rest in that. So th I'm still talking about the posture of prayer. How do we come before God? Well, we come before him knowing that, that he loves us, that he's a father, he knows all things, he's all powerful, and so my confidence in his love and knowledge and and power swells, so I want to approach him in prayer. But, but also, secondly, and this is where I'm beginning to shift, is we also come as a community in prayer. Notice the weight that is placed on pray this way, our Father. It is interesting that each one of you here that is a believer, that, that has come to faith in this sovereign work of God, by grace to deliver us from this curse, by cursing the Son. That's why, by the way, God had to turn away from him, because he was bearing the curse. But, but let me ask you, uh, do you realize that your brothers and sisters, you know, the reason we call one another's brothers and sisters is through this idea of adoption? 
So we've all been adopted by the same father, thereby making us sons and daughters of one another. And so Jesus is saying, when you pray, say, our father. Now, he's saying this in the context that he knows we're going to gather as community to pray. Now, at the beginning of chapter 6, we talked about secret prayer. Go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is alone, uh, pray to your father in secret, and he will see those who pray in secret. We read that and discussed it, and that's a important part of your prayer life. But so is community prayer, that we are gathering together as we are right now, and that we would pray together. The church has really, many of uh, the Christian church, have moved away from this idea of us coming together and praying. The pastor may pray, the elder may pray, but you don't pray. You just pray in your secret room. But, but clearly, the scriptures, Jesus teaching us how to pray is teaching us in community. That's at least what the early church thought, right? Because in Acts 2 and Acts 4 and Acts 6, and sprinkled through the book of Acts, what are they doing? They gather together and pray. The church gathers together and pray. Not just the leadership. Leadership may lead in that, but, but the church prays together. And that's why we pray together after the sermon. That's why we moved the prayer time years ago to the other side of the sermon. Why? Because we want the character of God displayed, we want the knowledge of God increased, and then we respond. So theology gives birth to methodology. Our prayers now are driven by what we just learned about God. We don't just pray what comes to our mind. We just don't pray. We think, God, who are you first? And then we pray in accordance with that. And that's what Jesus is going to instruct. So he tells them about God in, in verses 7 and 8 and the beginning of 9. And then he shows us this pattern to pray. And look with me at this pattern. Again, it's familiar to you, but let's just read it one more time. Here's how we're to pray. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. So that's the, that's the Lord's prayer uh, proper. And there's six petitions, you see that. It begins with God, everything begins with God first. He is alone God, so we begin with him. It, you can look at them, I want to look at them in two ways. So, so we've, we've postured ourselves right before God, and now we're going to follow the pattern that he lays down. Two, really, petitions here, uh, praying for God's glory and praying for God's grace. So two things, praying for God's glory, praying for God's grace. It, three petitions in each one. So praying for God's glory. You see it right there in the second half of nine. He says, hallowed be your name. Now, when we speak about the name of God, people, I think you know this, but we're really speaking about his character, his person, all of his attributes. So the name of God is just an expression for all of the glory of God. And we are to pray together as a church, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed is simply this, to sanctify or to set apart. It, it literally means cause to make holy. Now, isn't God's name already holy? Of course God's name is holy. So what are we praying? Well, we're praying that we would understand the holiness of it, that, that his name would be holy in our lives, in our hearts, and in our minds. When we're praying as a body now, this isn't necessarily a prayer. I believe you can pray it by yourselves. I believe you can repeat it, but I think it's more of a pattern that we're giving us. So part of our community prayer time, when we are gathered here, we're saying, God, we want your name made holy in our lives. Uh, to make holy the name of God, to make sanctified uh, the name of God, we value it, we love it, we respect it, we adore it, we worship all that there is about God. And that's what we're asking for. God, cause your name to be holy in this church. Do you pray that way? Do you pray, God, 
We of CCC, we want to hollow your name. We want to make your name holy. We want to display it through our lives. And we want the world to know that your name is great and glorious. We want the world to have the blinders taken off to see you and your majesty and your power and your glory and not to be overwhelmed by you in fear but run to you as a father. That's what we're to pray. So when we gather together, let's pray that. God, so many of our lives right now, if people were to see us, I don't know that they'd see, wow, God is, the value and the beauty of God is significant to this man. Look at the way he lives. So we're praying for God. We want your name holy in our lives. By the way we speak, by the way we act. But not just his name to be holy. Look at secondly, he says, your kingdom to come. Now, in a way, praying for his kingdom to come, don't we say his kingdom's already come in the sense that God's always been ruling over his kingdom. But, you know, we go back to the garden, and, of course, Adam and Eve sin, and uh, sin enters the world, so does death. And, of course, then, then, then the kingdom, in a way, is lost because Jesus comes and he says, hey, in, in Mark 1, 14 and 15, he says, the time's fulfilled, the time's done, we're finished, kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So I think what he's speaking here is we are to pray your kingdom come. What we're praying for is, Father, bring your saving reign to bear on this world. Father, bring rescue men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation and bring them into your kingdom. Do your saving work among the nations and among our church and among our community and, and bring them in. Father, bring your kingdom to its fullness. In other words, all those to whom you are moving with grace, bring them into your kingdom and save them. It's really an evangelistic prayer. God, bring your people to yourself through your spirit to believe in your son. God, do it. Move, move. Fill your kingdom up with your people. That's how we're to pray. And we're praying that for ourselves. Both that those of us in here who have not yet come to see God as Father, that they would. And our families and our communities. But we're praying together. I'm praying with you. You're praying with me. We're saying, God, we have family members that don't know you. They don't love your name. They don't respect your name. They're not in your kingdom. Father, bring them. Bring your kingdom to bear on their life. Or, or, or third, look at the third petition in this, praying for God's glory. He says, your will be done. You know the will of God. Just think about what God's will would be. It's good. It's pleasing. It's perfect. And he's saying, we're to pray. Father, would your will be done here on earth in, in my life, in our life as a church, as it is done in heaven? So how's God's will done in heaven? Well, it's done perfectly, right? He's being glorified and honored by all of creation. He's, he's glorious and majestic to behold. Can we live that way here? God, bring it here. Bring it here. Uh, start with me. May I subordinate my will to yours like Jesus not your will, but mine be done. May I subordinate my will that I might begin living according to your will. And Father, I pray that. I pray that for every member in this church here. I'm looking at you. I pray God's will be done in your life. Father, bring your will to bear in their life. I'm praying. It's a communal prayer, right? So you see these three petitions praying for God's glory. And what we're doing is we're lifting our prayers up from the ash heap of the mundane. Now, we're going to pray for the temporal and the mundane in just a minute. I don't want to say we don't pray for things like food and jobs and stuff. We do. It shouldn't get the priority, and it shouldn't get the bulk of our prayers, and it surely shouldn't be prayed first because Jesus instructs us. Pray first for the glory. Folks, these are eternal. These are global things. Just scan through what you pray for. And don't, I don't want you to feel 
I don't want you to feel condemned. I just want you to change course. I just want you to change course. So, so these are the things we begin thinking about. You know, God's name, is it being honored? What can I do? How can I display the value and the beauty that I consider God to be in my life? And praying for his kingdom to come. That, that, that God bring them to yourself through your spirit. And, and your will to be done. God, may your will be done in my life and in the life of my brothers and sisters in this church. So, so it's a beautiful prayer. But now, look, he moves from eternity and he moves to the everyday stuff of life, right? In the second half of this prayer, now we're praying for God's grace. He says this, give us our daily bread. Um, he's, you know, the bread, by the way, the word bread wouldn't just apply to wheat, to the things that we make, with sam- make sandwiches with. It's kind of not, it's not dissimilar to the idea of name represents God. Bread represents all the provisions that we need. So we're talking food, of course. We're talking jobs. We're talking money. We're talking health. We need these things, right? We need all these things to live. And so we are to pray with one another that God would give us our daily bread. Daily can be translated differently. Really, I think he's speaking to people who are living day by day, and we're really praying, God, today, give me all that I need to live, please. And for my sisters and brothers at Christ Covenant Church, Father, give them. Give them what they need. If someone's looking for a job and someone's tight on money or someone's short on food, or, or God, help them. Uh, I'm praying for them right now. That's how we're to pray. It's a communal prayer. I keep repeating that. I want you to see that you ought to have each other in view when you're praying this prayer. That we're praying. Now, could he give us a month's worth of bread? Absolutely, he could. Why are we praying for it daily? I think he's trying to teach his adopted children, you have to learn dependence on me. Why do we have to learn dependence on me? Because you don't have tomorrow. Do you, are you guaranteed to live tomorrow? The last time I checked, when I lay down, I'm not sure what's going to happen when I wake up. I, I lay down as a reminder to myself every night, someone's going to lay me down in the box, I'm going to die. You don't have tomorrow guaranteed to you. Uh, will we wake up tomorrow morning? I imagine all of us will. Maybe one won't. But, but that's not to frighten us, it's just to remind us that he gives life and breath to us every single day. And I want to remember that by praying this prayer. And I want my brothers and sisters to know it by praying this prayer. Uh, Secondly, look, we're to pray for this forgiveness idea. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now, I, I think as bread is for the body, so is forgiveness for the soul. So I think when we pray this petition, we're thinking of the gospel. We're thinking, you have forgiven me in Christ. My heart swells with joy over God, and I want to move with forgiveness and reconciliation to my brothers and sisters. So when I'm praying, Father, forgive me, forgive us, all of our debts, because we've all sinned, and really we've sinned against each other in many ways. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So we're reminding ourselves of what he's done to forgive us, and now we're going to walk with reconciling power to those that we've sinned against. And so we're praying for things like, God, Father, I don't want to hold grievances against my brothers and sisters. Forgive me for my grudges and my grievances and my, my not giving the benefit of the doubt. Father, help me to see my own sin that I might be free to forgive others. I think that's what he's speaking about here. He's talking about how can we exist with one another and be at odds with one another when we are talking about the odds and the enmity that has been reconciled with God that has to translate to one another. I think that's the purpose of 14 and 15. 
When you read 14 and 15, it kind of sounds like a, a quid pro quo, kind of a tit for tat. This, well, if you forgive, God will forgive you. And if you don't forgive, whoops, God's not going to forgive you. I think he's simply saying this, that God forgives the repentant. And the repentant person has come to understand their sin is profound, profound, more profound than anybody's sin against them. I've sinned against God legions more than anybody could ever sin against me. And he's forgiven me by grace. Should I not forgive others? So I think that's what he's driving at. When we pray, forgive us our debts, we are praying as a church, God, if there's disharmony, if there's disunity, God, let me be an agent to bring about change. Let me bring forgiveness. Let me seek forgiveness. Let me humble myself and repent of my sins to my brothers and sisters. I think that's what he's driving at. And then the last part of this, kind of the second tablet, if you will, is lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. What's he praying here? Well, we know God doesn't draw us into temptation. You know, we know that in um, James chapter 1, God doesn't tempt anyone to evil. God saved us from evil. He's not going to tempt us back into it. And the word temptation can actually be testing. And, and I think what, what Jesus is saying is, people, listen, uh, you are saved, and, and you've been delivered, and you've been forgiven, but you live in a very hostile, evil world that is always presenting opportunities to fall. And we are recognizing our brokenness and our weakness and the battle with indwelling sin. And we're saying, God, please have mercy on me. Don't, don't lead me into those areas where I might spiritually collapse or I might morally falter. Father, I, I am weak. I, I'm, I'm apt. You know, we sing that, that our hearts are, are apt to wonder. I, I'm apt to wander. And so, Father, would you protect me? Uh, and give my brothers and sisters grace that they might not slip into error. Father, pray for m- I, I, I pray for my brothers and sisters that they would remain firm in their faith and joyful in you. Uh, Father, help them. So it's a communal prayer. We're praying for one another to do all these things. That, that God, God, help forgive us our debts and lead us not into a time of testing where Satan and his accusations and temptations might overwhelm us. And God, I pray for that for my brothers. So, so what you have here is, is you have this posturing before God. This is who God is. God is, is loving and he's knowing and he's all-powerful and we can come in confidence. And then we pray as a community and we pray this way. We, we pray for God's glory to be manifest in our lives. And I'm not speaking about in Tom's life and in Carol's life and in Luke's life. In our corporate life, his His. His glory would be known, and we're praying for his grace to be given to in our lives, in our corporate lives, because remember, we're brothers and sisters, and we're part of one body where Christ is the head. So when we go to prayer now, which we're about to, I want you to have the confidence in the love and the power of God. And when we appeal to God, let's be thinking about how he patterned for us, that we are to appeal to God for the things that that bring him glory. Can we pray that way? Can we say, God, we want your name honored in Christ's covenant church through the faithful lives of your people. God, we, we want, we want your, your, your kingdom to be filled. We want this place to see conversions. We want to see God's kingdom fill up as it fills up here. And we also pray for our needs. But when we pray for our personal needs, let's remember our brothers and sisters that have the similar needs. And that way we can just reposture ourselves, and then follow the pattern that God's given us. So let me begin, and I would ask you as we move to this corporate time, as the Lord has instructed us, uh, let's pray loudly 
so we can hear you and because it's for us, right? Our prayer is not for you. This corporate prayer is for all of us. So we want to hear you, of course. And uh, we, we want to pray briefly. And, and there's nothing super spiritual about brief, but because we're a group this size, we think it's appropriate to allow others to pray as well. So I will start and then Jack uh, will close us in just a moment. Father, we are thankful for your kingdom that has been brought to us in Jesus, that in him and through him, you have drawn us to yourself. We pray, Lord, that you would draw others, even within our midst, within our families, draw them to yourself by the work of the Son, through the power of the Spirit, for the glory of your name.